that's Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39. Uh, At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I wonder if you've given much thought to Mary. I wonder if you, like me, often thought of her as those paintings, as a demure, quiet, obedient girl. Someone who, like we've seen... <laughs> what are you Hey, there we go. <laughs> um, someone who seems so serenely uh, to be looking on as her world is turned upside down. She calmly takes it all in her stride. She seems to be docile and compliant. Perhaps instead of simply quiet and compliant, you think much worse about her situation. Perhaps of simply quiet and compliant, rather than going along with it all in an unassuming way, you think of her as coerced. I remember once when I was um, at uni, there was a poem in my uni student magazine that described the incarnation as God basically raping Mary, like the Greek and Roman gods who impregnated mortals, like Zeus who transformed himself into a bull and a swan to rape and impregnate mortal women. Is Mary something akin to The Handmaid's Tale? I'm not sure if you've read the book or seen the show but it's about a dystopian society where fertile women are forced into sexual slavery and used as a vessel to give birth to children for the ruling families. Is Mary just a submissive vessel, a womb to be used? Is that all she is? Tonight I want to take another look at Mary. I want us to read her words and to allow her to speak for herself And then I want to look at what we can learn from her because I think that she is much more than what we think and I think that we can learn a lot from her. Mary is world famous and yet so misunderstood. As Protestants, we tend to shy away from her, I think, because she's been idolised and idealised in the Catholic tradition. 
She's been looked at as one of the most famous women in history. But her contribution as a believer and a teacher and a faith-filled woman has been overlooked and left her as a silent prop in a nativity piece. So let's take a closer look at her story. Mary has been told by the angel Gabriel that she is highly favoured and that she will give birth to a son, Jesus, who will be the son of God and his kingdom will never end. Mary asks a question about how it will happen and she's not rebuked, unlike Zechariah in the previous passage for his lack of faith, but instead the angel explains how and waits for her response. In fact, uh, Dr. Amy Peeler points out the contrast between Zechariah and Mary. Zechariah goes to meet with God. He goes to the temple on the one day when he's allowed. But God comes to Mary. Instead of going to a holy space to meet God, God makes Mary a holy space. Peeler puts it this way. While Zachariah is invited to a state banquet at Buckingham Palace, the royal family themselves pay a formal visit to Mary's home address. In the body of a woman, God breaches the divide between a holy God and sinful humanity by dwelling within her. And so we see God's initiative, but also... Mary's agency at work, thinking about it, asking questions and accepting the situation before anything happens. It is something that she accepts rather than it being forced upon her. As Peeler points out, she thoughtfully and willfully humbles herself. She is not lowered. This is the way that God works. He reveals his grace to us and invites us to respond. He takes the initiative, but he doesn't coerce us. God offers his grace to each one of us. It is available to all of us. If you have not received this offer for yourself, this is the whole story of Christmas, that God comes near. He bridges the gulf. Rather than waiting for us to seek him, or us jumping through hoops to get to him. And so I imagine that Mary was thinking about the angel's words to her a lot as she hurries to Elizabeth's house, which would have been a four-day journey. She must have been particularly thinking over the Old Testament story of Hannah, as many of the concept of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 are echoed in Mary's song, as well as many other Bible references. And interestingly, her words spoken here are the longest record uh, in the New Testament spoken by a woman. Mary sets up the paradigm for how we are to interpret Jesus' birth. She is the first authoritative interpreter of how scripture is to be read in light of God's new work, a work which she is at the epicentre of. And so she begins, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. Here, soul and spirit are synonymous. She means with her whole life. We know this song as the Magnificent, 
which is the Latin term for magnify and is the first word in the Latin translation. The Greek word is megaluno, from which we get mega from, and it means to make great, to praise, to enlarge or magnify, and translated in the versions that we have here as glorifies. Why does Mary want to make God great and magnify him with her whole being? Well, because he has done that to her. See the next couplet in verse 48 and 49. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. God has amplified Mary. She, who was a young, poor teenage girl, has been shown grace from God, her saviour. The mighty one has done great things to her. And she is rightly proud of that, even while acknowledging her humility and the cost that it will take. Because when God intervenes in your life, it is always costly, but it is always a blessing and a privilege. In God's economy of reversal, blessing, Gifts and sacrifices go hand in hand. Elizabeth's disgrace was taken away. Mary consented to disgrace, but is in the process blessed. And everyone who follows Jesus is called to die to themselves in order to have life to the full. Some people give up wealth or career ambition. Some people sacrifice hopes for relationships. Some people battle daily challenges. The list goes on. But Jesus promises that no one who has left home or wife or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. We have the best in Jesus. Whatever sacrifices for his sake we make, He will meet us in them. The Mighty One sees us and pours out his mercy. So Mary recognises God's greatness and her lowliness and she's amazed at his mercy and how he blesses her. And this mercy we see is not just for her but it's for all who fear God. That is, for all who recognise their greatest, that his, sorry, the all who recognise his greatness and their neediness, just like Mary does. So she says in verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. God's mercy has no limits. We just need to recognise our need and receive it. So many times, though, we arrogantly press on thinking that we know best and ignoring the creator who made us. We don't like to admit that we're needy. It's kind of like when someone arrogantly explains something to an expert. I've got some examples behind me of some tweets and some memes of times when this has happened. You have a read. They're very cringeworthy. You got that one? 
Can we go to the next? So this one might be a bit hard to read, but this is the screenwriter and director of Ed Solomon of Men in Black, and he writes this. At a cafe where I'm writing, the people next to me were disagreeing about the origins of Men in Black, and I said, if you like, I could clear that up for you. And one responded, I'm sorry, we do not need an old white man's mansplanation. So I apologised, and that was that. Uh, the next one, you might not be able to see that too, so I'll read it out. So this is from Malalia. We watch in complete shock as Taliban take control of Afghanistan. I'm deeply worried about women, minorities and human rights advocates. Global, regional and local powers must call for an immediate ceasefire, provide urgent humanitarian aid and protect refugees and civilians. And someone responds to her with, Madam, you only worry, but do nothing. And then somebody else replies to her and says she was willing to get killed as a child to stand up for her right to read. She got shot in the face. What did you do? <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so what Christians call sin is basically mansplaining but to God. So I'm going to call it God-splaining. I don't know if that works or not, but <laughs> it's basically God-splaining. I've read one example of a woman who was catching a flight after just presenting at a conference and she was with another presenter who was waiting for his flight home too and another man comes and sits near them and they start to talk and the guy's asking them about their conference and then he launches into a, well actually, which most women know what that means, and starts disagreeing with the women's research. And the fellow presenter leans in and says, dude, you missed an opportunity. You had an expert sitting in front of you, but you didn't ask a single question. You know she's got advanced degrees and is published, but you just tried to show her that you know more than her. You missed out. Big fail, man. And the guy got uncomfortable and he tried to defend himself, but they were having none of it. And then the guy conceded and he did the right thing. He asked the woman if she could teach him about the subject before he went to board his plane. Well, this is what we need to do with God. We need to recognise our need and concede to allowing him to rule our life and receive his mercy. God's mercy is available to all who get that... Sorry, his mercy is available to all who get that they need it. This is the contrast that the next verses bring out. Verses 51 and 52. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. So the parallelism that we saw in the earlier verses is now antithetical. He brings down rulers and he lifts up the humble. He fills the hungry and the rich leave empty. God isn't swapping the rich for the poor, but instead he's dismantling the very structures of inequality that create that abuse and bringing a new order of peace and mercy where no one dominates another and where no one is left hungry. Those who set themselves up against God won't win. This picture is of reversal which Jesus' incarnation brings and will be consummated when he comes again 
and it is so certain that Mary can speak of it as a done deal, even though it's yet to be realised in the future. Her son, Jesus, will be the one to bring vindication and justice. And Jesus himself, later in the book of Luke, acknowledges that he is the one who is prophesied... I'm not having much there. The prophecies were that he would proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and set the oppressed free. And then finally, in the last two verses, Mary sings of how God's mercy flows to Israel, just as it has to her. What was personal to her is now made corporate. God's might and mercy has been shown to Mary, but it's not just for her, or just to Israel, but for all people who put their trust in his promises. Mary's song follows the melody of all the Old Testament songs beforehand. Songs of reversal and deliverance, of God intervening in history to bring redemption. And it's like the reprise at the end of the musical that replays all the previous songs together, but with a twist. And so we read in verses 54 and 55, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. Mary takes the themes of the Old Testament and composes a new song, singing of God's faithfulness to his promises and fulfilment of those earlier tunes of hope. Mary sings of the consummation and fulfilment of what is both here and to come. Mary can recall God's mercy from the beginning, from Abraham, and God's continual mercy right to the end. And so she sings. Because when God comes near, when he reveals himself to you, you can't help but sing. Mary sings of what Jesus' birth will mean for the world. Those marginalised and ignored will find grace and hope in Jesus. She magnifies and makes much of God because he has made much of her, even in her lowliness. What a song. What an audacious, beautiful song. It's much more than the silent Mary that we've come to be familiar with. And in fact, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer recognised the subversive nature of Mary's song. Before being executed by the Nazis, He spoke these words in a sermon during Advent on December 17, 1933. He said this, The song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. In that sense, Mary's a bit more like June from The Handmaid's Tale, with that steely look of determination to bring down injustice and to rescue those who have been oppressed. Mary's not a revolutionary, per se, 
but she believes in and celebrates a revolutionary God. A God who doesn't support the status quo, but will one day topple it. And in fact, her words have been used by people who have been oppressed and they've been considered so subversive and provocative that they've been banned in three countries in the last century. Thanks, Ben. You can take that down now. In India, during the British rule, the singing of the Magnificat was banned in churches. And on the last day of the British rule in 1947, Gandhi thought for it to be red as the British flag was lowered. It was banned in Argentina when the mothers of the disappeared put its words on placards and they marched through the capital in front of the presidential palace. And it was also supposedly prohibited in Guatemala in the 1980s because of its message of bringing down the mighty, raising up the lowly and feeding the hungry, which the poor grasped onto. This is a Christmas carol with an edge and it's been sung by people in all ages and places who are enduring injustice and looking to an end to oppression. Her song is not just about improving systems but demolishing them. It's not about bringing down the powerful so that more people can take their place but a radical reversal of life. And it's both spiritual and earthly. It talks about spiritual change and social change. We need to keep those two together as Christians. So to finish, I want to share four things that I think that we can learn from Mary. And I couldn't get them into an alliteration, I'm sorry, but I've got two H's and I've got two X's, so that'll do. The first one is hope. Mary praises God with certain hope even though she hasn't seen the outcome to these promises yet. She is assured of their fulfilment in God's faithfulness. Can we praise God and trust him even when we don't see the end yet? Can we sing of what God will do as though it's as good as done? When my kids were little and they really wanted something for Christmas, I would say to them, Well, we'll see. We'll just have to wait, won't we? Knowing full well that I knew exactly what they wanted and I'd already bought it and it was sitting up in the cupboard, hidden out of sight. God doesn't reveal everything to us right now. We have to wait and trust him. But he has been faithful to all his promises in the past. And we know He has the power and the love to complete what's left. So we can hope like Mary, even while we wait, and even while this life can be hard. Secondly, we can be people of audacious humility, like Mary. People who recognise our unworthiness, that God would deem to save us, whilst holding boldly to the knowledge that we are loved and lifted up by him. Holding these two things together is transformative. It leads us not to be either self-righteous and puffing ourselves up or self-accusatory and putting ourselves down. God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. And I think that 
incorrectly, Christians have often felt that they need to be doormats. But this is not the case at all. But nor should we be arrogant. That's another ugly version of Christianity that's often played out, particularly on social media. We don't think more highly or lowly of ourselves. Like Mary, we need to think rightly of ourselves. That although we are great sinners, we are greatly loved and saved, which gives us a bold and confident self-worth that rests in what the Heavenly Father thinks of us and what God has done for us. And that, I think, is truly appealing. I wonder if, as we gather at tables this Christmas season, can we be people who are both humble and confident? What would that look like in your context? Would it mean being happy to sit next to the awkward person at dinner? Or gladly helping out in the kitchen while everyone else is relaxing? Or would it mean doing less this year because you're not seeking to earn your approval, because you know your value is in Christ? We can have audacious humility like Mary because our worth is in Jesus. Thirdly, I wonder if like Mary we can be prepared to bear the shame, the disgrace of being chosen by God and see that as a blessing. God may ask us to take on burdens for the sake of the gospel. He doesn't thrust them on us, but he invites us into partnership with him. Will we choose to consent to being used as a servant of God, just as Mary did? And fourthly, let's be people saturated in the scripture like Mary. The preacher Charles Spurgeon used to say of John Bunyan that if you prick him anywhere, he bleeds the Bible. That's the sort of person I aspire to be. Let's be like that. Let's be a church that is so committed to knowing, but not just knowing God's word, but living by God's word. Let us meditate on it, prize it, preach it to ourselves, speak and sing it out so that it transforms us and our community. Let's be people filled with God's word, just like Mary. Mary knew these things. She knew that God was faithful to his promises and that she could put her hope in him. She was humble because she had encountered God's holiness and power and recognised her need while standing confident in his love. She assented to being God's servant and accepting both the shame and the blessings that that brings. And she was saturated in scripture. It helped her to navigate the world and it gave her hope and courage and comfort. Mary is so much more than a mother or a womb, important as those things are. But we do a disservice to her and to ourselves if we ignore what she can teach us about being a disciple of God. And one last practical way that we could imitate Mary this Advent 
is by writing your own Magnificat, your own personal song about how God, how great God is. I had a go, and here's my effort. I'll read it to you. I praise God with all that I am. He knows my sin, my brokenness, and my weakness, and yet he covers me with his mercy. I praise him because his mercy flows to all who recognise their neediness. He will make all things right. He will expose the arrogant and exalt the weak. He will bring down injustice and overthrow those who oppress the vulnerable. And he will raise up the powerless. In his mercy, he has kept his covenant and fulfilled his promises making a people of his own through his son, Jesus, my saviour. So, go home tonight and have another look at Mary's song and maybe try writing your own Magnificat and make it your own. You might like to share it on our Facebook hub or even to your own social media. Right now, let's, just like Mary, sing of God's faithfulness which is what we're going to do.